And welcome everybody to another edition of RegWatch on GFN.TV. Around the world, advocates for safer nicotine products make a simple request of policymakers apply reason and common sense to decisions impacting access and choice to these potentially life-saving products. But in a growing number of jurisdictions, these principles of sound decision-making are treated with scorn and contempt. Joining us today is someone who knows a great deal about promoting reason and common sense, Australian politician Fiona Patton, leader of the Reason Party and MP for the Northern Metropolitan Region in the Victorian Legislative Council. Fiona, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thanks for having me, Brent. Your path to Parliament is not a typical one. Tell us, how did you get your start in politics and why? I, I first got involved um, in politics in a very peripheral way uh, through during the HIV and AIDS epidemic. So I was volunteering on um, a needle exchange pro a needle exchange program program. It was a mobile bus, and I was also very involved with the AIDS council in my in my city. And I, I saw the discrimination. I saw the impact and effects of prohibitive laws or discriminatory laws, and I saw the stigma involved in that. I then worked as a sex worker. I ran an industry association um, that represented the, the adult industry in Australia, as well as a lot of the sex education programs and condom manufacturers, etc. And I kept seeing that the, um, the, the community attitudes were going in one direction, but politicians, uh, uh, politicians' work was going in the other direction. So we were seeing a fundamental split. And whether that was around end-of-life choices, around drug law reform, around marriage equality, there was a whole range of areas where the, 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 the government was completely out of step with the community. And... I worked from the outside, you know, walking the corridors of, of the various state and federal parliaments around Australia, trying to trying to change this. And in the end, we thought, yeah, not so much if you can't beat them, join them, but let's take these issues to the ballot box. And um, so, yes, yeah, so the, the 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 sex party was born at that stage, Brent. And you actually got elected under that party. That's right. Much to everyone's surprise. So this gave me the opportunity to talk about the issues that I thought were important. So I got um, assisted dying on, on, you know, I got a, an inquiry into assisted dying that eventually led to legislation. I introduced legislation to um, provide safe access zones around abortion clinics. So I, people started to sort of, I guess, take notice of the sex party and were somewhat surprised at, at the, the level of activity and success we were having. So at a ballot, at a, at a polling booth for a federal election, I just, every second person would go, love what you do, change your name, love what you do, change your name. It takes a certain person to wear a bright yellow t-shirt with sex emblazoned on the front. Uh, so yeah, we went back to the drawing board and thought about who we were and who we wanted to be and who we wanted to talk to in our community. And yeah, we changed our name to Reason. And as we like to say, we've become a voice of reason. Fiona, when you first got started, and I'm sure you're still fighting for, on many of these issues now, did you understand even then, back then, that it was harm reduction that you were fighting for? Back in the 1980s, when I first kind of got involved in this area, I don't think we had fully articulated 
the theory of harm reduction. I, I didn't know that's what it was, but certainly as I started to get involved um, in the sex worker community, uh, we started to use that terminology. And I now, I now realise that, yes, it was, it was always about harm reduction. And I think that might be safe injecting, safe injecting rooms. It might be, as I said, clean needles. It might be drug education. But it also might be things like, um, you know, drink driving or, you know, blood alcohol testing on roadsides. You know, we, we don't, we're not going to stop people from drinking, but what we want them to do is not harm anyone as a result to that. So, you know, harm reduction goes, it goes permeates throughout our lives, yet you and I might have a strong understanding about it. We might talk about it all the time. I still think that the general population um, is not all that familiar with that term. And that might be something that we need, we need to continue to work on. So you're certainly fighting the big fights against some of the big issues. So let's turn to tobacco harm reduction now in your mind. Is THR a valid application of the harm reduction philosophy as you would find it with, say, hard drugs? Of course. And it's completely natural. And it's a completely natural progression. It's a completely natural response to tobacco. You know, I look at the people who are rallying against um, tobacco harm reduction, and they were some of the pioneers of harm reduction in this country. They were also some of the, the people who rallied against tobacco, who tried to, you know, reduce um, tobacco use in this country and, and in, in, in your country as well. And yet they're now sitting on the other side of the fence saying, you know, no abstinence is the only answer. Uh, or, you, you know, go to Big Pharma and, and take on board, a, you know, some sort of um, Johnson & Johnson nicotine replacement treatment. Um, so there's you know, it, it really is quite perplexing. And then the outcome of that is that governments don't want to touch it because they're too scared of the, the Heart Foundation, the Cancer Council, who are all not providing any great rationale except for, oh, we don't know how dangerous vaping might be. Well, what we do know is how dangerous smoking is. And what we do know, and none of them will disagree with this, is that vaping is not as dangerous as smoking. So, you know, this is fundamental harm reduction. And we've got, you know, these, these people who previously argued for harm reduction, previously fought for, for, needle, um, for needle exchanges, previously fought for opioid replacement treatments, um, and yet they won't support this replacement treatment. And it's, I, I don't understand it. And, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but sometimes you kind of think, you know, are they in the pocket of big tobacco? You know, they get great big donations from huge supermarkets, which are the biggest retailers of tobacco. So is, is that the rationale? Now, I don't, I don't actually think it is, but, you know, it, 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 it is strange. It is strange and it is perplexing. And that's where my question comes from, because there are so many people that, you know, were, were warriors for harm reduction when it comes to hard drugs and so forth, but yet they're the most, the most challenged to accept it for tobacco. And so wondering whether or not if they just don't think that it's a valid application of the theory. And I'm trying to be kind by coming up with that kind of analysis. I agree with you. I think there's, I think there's 
also this growing stigma around smokers that somehow smokers should know better, you know, that smokers are not born into this addiction through trauma or mental, well, mental health, actually they are, but that through trauma or, you know, there's, there's not this very sad backstory that, you know, we might see in, in, in other areas where um, drugs, drugs are problematic in someone's life. So is it that, or is it just that they have always run these quick campaigns, run these campaigns, and they don't want to let go of that and run run these campaigns that nicotine is the problem, that nicotine is bad. And that is, you know, that's misinformation because, well, you know, I mean, I'm sure putting any um, impure substance into your body is, is not is not ideal, but it's the we know it's the smoking we know it's the tar that is that is actually killing people um so you know we there's there's concern about young people and i you know and i and i i share that i share that concern uh but what we're doing now is actually putting young people at greater risk than if we were to to take a different path of regulation we're based in canada and so we're both come from the Commonwealth countries. And if anybody should have some common sense, it's us. We don't seem to, though, be listening to, you know, the motherland. You know, England's doing one thing. They seem to be the only bright light uh, when it comes to this issue. What's going wrong with, the, you know, everybody else? I liken Canada to New Zealand. You know, Canada's just that bit better than their than their than their adjoining cousin, you know, United States, and and New Zealand is just that bit better than than their than their than their their brother being Australia, um, and you see what New Zealand has done, and you see the success of what they've done, and you know they they will be smoke free, you know, probably before the end of this decade, which is quite extraordinary. Now Australia, we have been stubbornly sitting at the same level of smoking rates um, for close on a decade. And then if you look at our Indigenous communities, if you look at our Aboriginal brothers and sisters, their smoking rates are far higher. And we are doing nothing about that. We are letting those people die. Why are we not providing these tools to our Aboriginal community? And in fact, when I speak to Aboriginal organisations about this, they say, Fiona, when we mention this at the table, we get shot down and you know we know that our our community members are wanting to use vaporizers and we want to be able to to give them information about how to do it safely about you know what's the best per device for them and what should be their expectations and they get shot down by cancer council they get shot down by health departments and you know again if i was going to be a real conspiracy theorist i think of all of the tobacco tax that we make um from those 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 really hardened smokers at the top, you know, few percentages of smoking rates. Um, you know, we make billions of dollars in Australia on on tobacco tax. You know, I think it's somewhere it's somewhere around three or four billion dollars a year. You know, it funds a lot of hospitals. So, is that also coming into play in in these policy decisions? Now, Australia, uh, just recently, I guess, within the last two years, you know, started moving towards a much more 
stringent um, access to uh, nicotine vapes and it being now you have to actually get a doctor's prescription. How is that going? It's going terribly, Brent. Uh, although, you know, it, it is going terribly, but I, there, there also is probably it has created some greater understanding about harm reduction and alternative um, and, you know, nicotine replacement therapies amongst some of the medical profession. However, it's, it's nowhere. And what is, what, you know, unsurprisingly, we all knew this was going to happen. It's creating a giant black market in the product, a completely unregulated market. Um, and, you know, it's, it's causing far more harm. It's probably preventing people from accessing this um, replacement therapy. Uh, so for many people, they, you know, it's become just too hard. Uh, their GPs not interested in prescribing a nicotine product for them uh, or via a vape. So they're going back to smoking. Um, and, you know, the, we, we've seen, you know, there's always these kind of sweet spots in, in, in harm reduction. And, you know, we see it in tobacco. You keep up putting the price up, putting the price up, putting the price up, and people stop, go, right, that's it, I'm quitting. Um, but then it gets to a point where there's a certain percentage who can't quit. And that's where organized crime and, and criminal organizations get involved because then they see that market. And we're, we've seen that in tobacco. And sadly, we are starting to see this in, in vaping, even though, and despite all of this, and I think this is really, of, this makes this point, um, vaping numbers in Australia are continuing to rise. You know, this, they're still fairly small, but they're continuing to rise despite all attempts to stop people from accessing um, uh, nicotine replacement vaping. Are you worried that um, enforcement uh, will lead to actual incarceration at some point? Oh, it definitely will. It definitely will. Um, although, you know, I've got to say that we know we have a huge illicit tobacco market in Australia. Absolutely massive. Um, and very little is done about it. Very little is done about it. There's occasional big busts and, you know, the, the TV cameras come and the police show the big, you know, bundles of tobacco or, or you, know, um, you know, illicit cigarette packets and things like that. But it, it, it doesn't even touch the tip of that iceberg. So I suspect that, yes, we could see people being incarcerated. You know, right now, it's actually illegal to possess tobacco, uh, to, to possess nicotine without a prescription. So it's actually a criminal offence now for someone. Now, I'm not aware of anyone who's been charged from that. And I'd, I'd challenge the police to figure out whether that person vaping in the street is vaping a nicotine product or a non-nicotine product. Um, and I think the police quite rightly felt that they've got better things to do. But, you know, right now, using nicotine without a prescription uh, could put you in jail, uh, which even as I say that, I can't believe those words are coming out of my mouth. So this truly is a new war on nicotine, They're replacing, uh, well, I guess the drug war is still ongoing in Australia, but, you know, it's now a new war. We are much happier providing, you know, suboxone or methadone or, you know, any form of opioid replacement therapy 
the community is even more relaxed about you know that than they are around providing a replacement therapy for smokers. And this goes to this kind of notion that you should be able to just give up. And you know, and and look for most lovely middle class people who've grown, gone to good schools and all of that. They have very low smoking rates in those in those cohorts. The smoking rates are much higher in our, commun- our, dis- our communities of disadvantage, and the co- the cost is so high. We're seeing, you know, in some places, people having to forego, um, you know, uh, uh, buying good, you know, good healthy groceries to support their nicotine habit because the only way they can access it is through very, very expensive tobacco. Yeah, when you keep piling on the nicotine tax, the tobacco tax on the cigarettes, and it does hit that point in Canada at one point right before I quit smoking uh, several years ago, because I was a two-pack-a-day smoker, it was yeah. it was $32 a day. I mean, that's a serious habit. That's a drug habit. And so at what point um, does that become really being taken advantage of? It, it, exactly. And, 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 you know, my, I, I probably, I wasn't a two pack a day smoker, but, you know, I really struggled to give up and, and vaping provided that solution for me as well. So, you know, so I, I, you know, I, I have, I can advocate from that personal story um, and, and, and understanding, you know, how much better I feel not smoking. Um, but, you know, even from a government perspective, smoking, like while we make a lot of money from the tax, Smoking is really expensive. It is expensive to our health system. The cost to our health, the cost to early death, the cost to um, emphysema and other forms of lung damage, the cost of heart disease, all of those things should make us, make every fiscal conservative politician race to, to to the statute book to change that law and to make it, you know, easy um, for, for people to be able to vape. And I, um, and sadly, we're not getting that. You know, I, I haven't given up because what I'm seeing is, you know, people are doing it anyway. You know, Australians and, and people around the world are understanding that this is a healthier option for them, that this is a, reduces the harm of tobacco and this helps them, you know, give up and it helps them, um, become smoke free. So I, I remain optimistic that as our numbers of vapors continue to grow, that, you know, politicians will actually start seeing it as an electoral matter and that they will see that, that, you know, voting against a large cohort of their electorate actually could be electoral suicide for them. What is the argument then, uh, that access to safer nicotine products is a human right? we should have that autonomy of our own bodies. So if something is available that reduces our reduces harm, that that enables us to live a healthier life, then that is a human right. Fiona, the Global Forum on Nicotine Conference in Warsaw, Poland is coming up this June 16 to 18. You're attending again this year, participating on several panels. One of those panels is Safer Nicotine, human rights and legal challenges. 
Fiona, why is a conference like GFN 22 important to tobacco harm reduction? It is absolutely crucial that we try, we keep the common sense, we keep the evidence in the public eye. And that's what conferences like this do. They, they provide us with platforms to talk about the actual evidence um, around um, tobacco harm reduction and around nicotine replacement therapies. I think also it's about um, people who vape themselves, uh, you know, being able to see that they're not alone and that there is a community out there and that what they're doing is not um, unscrupulous, is that it actually is about their own health and it reaffirms the decisions that they made to give up smoking um, and use the tool of vaping or any uh, you know nicotine any other nicotine replacement therapies and that, that that was the right that was that was a decision that that many other people have made. 